First Peter chapter 3. You might also want to open up Psalm 34. So First Peter 3 and Psalm 34. We're in that section of Peter's letter as he continues to talk about sharing the sufferings of Christ. And as Paul said, to fellowship in His sufferings. Such a weird statement. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. And Man, that just sounds strange. Why would you want to fellowship with suffering? You know, we live in a world that wants to fellowship with happiness and joy and celebration. Not suffering. But the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, that's something completely different. And we're in that place in the letter where we just last week, we talked about living stones. Week ago Sunday. And that we are, you also, Peter said, as living stones are being built together for a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And that picture of living stones all built in together with the living stone, Christ, the cornerstone, the head of the corner, It's a powerful and strong and encouraging picture. But what do you do, living stones, when you feel as though you're a rock in a hard place? Not even between a rock and a hard place. You are a rock, but you're in a hard place. You're a stone. You're a living stone. But but it's difficult. It's, it's, It's suffering. It's frustration. Maybe you find yourself being pressed in. Well, David was there. David was hounded by Saul and the hateful hard-heartedness of Israel's first king, so jealous of David, wanting David dead and out of his way, even though Saul already had the throne, and David continually said he was no threat to the throne. But David fled from the presence of Saul. And we're told in 1 Samuel 21 that as he fled Saul, he ended up in Philistine territory. As a matter of fact, not just Philistine territory, but in a city named Gath, which was the hometown of Goliath, who David himself had killed. How ironic. Fleeing the king of his country to go to the country of the enemy of the very giant that he had knocked out and killed and beheaded. David and Gath was immediately recognized as that champion of Israel, as the killer of the giant. And so so to escape, David, man after God's own heart, begins to feign insanity. As a matter of fact, if you look up the story, it's just five verses long in 1 Samuel 21, but it's fascinating that David begins scribbling and dribbling. He starts scribbling on the gates of Gath to make himself look insane. He's drooling down his beard. (laughs) This is David. You know, and when you see that picture, that outward show of insanity, it's just a, a crazy story because David found himself between a rock and a hard place. If I go back, Saul's there, but if I stay here, I'm in Gath. What do I do? And he acts insane. But what's amazing to me is it was during this fugitive flight of David that he writes Psalm 34. It's a psalm that as you read it, you'd think, oh, he's got to write that up in the stronghold of Engedi, where the water falls and the, and the greenery grows out of the rock and that beautiful, austere desert setting. That's where he wrote it. Or, or perhaps out in the wilderness itself. Or maybe somewhere out by the Mediterranean. It's a beautiful psalm, but no, David writes it in an insane time in his life. Listen to this. Psalm 34, verse 1. 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His holy ones, His saints. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now he continues on, but we're going to go over and read it in Peter's version. So now over to Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 3, where he picks up in what would be verse 12 of Psalm 34, but we're in verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Where he continues to read on, the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now the reason I started in Psalm 34, and then we launched back over here to 1 Peter chapter 3, is you've got to get the backstory. To understand what Peter's talking about here, to know the background of David's harrowing experience, is so important because of where Peter is now going to take us in the letter. In sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And what we recognize in David, that though he was in an insane time of his life, he had peace. While the outward show of David's life seemed crazy, we know what was going on in his heart. We know where his mind was. We know where his spirit was. We know that this was a man who was completely at peace. There is peace of mind in an insane world. When it seems crazy, or when you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place, a peace of mind, even in the flurry of fearful situations, that accompanies those who, as David wrote, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. I think I said years ago when we were talking about the fear of the Lord, that I was finally getting what a sweet thing that was. You know, as a younger Christian, a younger believer, the fear of the Lord sounded to me as just kind of a heavy-handed thing. Fear of the Lord. Be afraid. Be very afraid, you know? And I didn't, didn't understand, didn't grasp what that really means to be someone who fears the Lord, who looks to Him above all others as the one in authority, as the one who is great, as the one under whom I stand, who covers me, who overshadows me, who overpowers me, the fear of the Lord. There is peace there, there is power there, there is strength there, and even in suffering, that's the place I want to be. 
the fear of the Lord. Well, I want to talk about that tonight because here is where now sharing in the sufferings of Christ gets very personal. With that as the backstory, he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. David was in the mess he was in because of Saul's insane jealousy. David's acting crazy. Saul was crazy. Saul was losing it in his desire to kill David. And David is fleeing this. He was not at fault. But you know what? Sometimes the insanity of others or the world around us begins to feel like and look like our own insanity. Sometimes the craziness of life gets you asking the question, am I the one crazy here? Am I the one who's actually losing it here? So listen, where Peter's at right here, and what the Word is teaching us is when you are stuck with Saul on the one hand and the Philistines of Gath on the other, don't go scribbling and dribbling. Don't enter into the insane. Just do the right thing. So simple, but just do what's right. And it doesn't matter what the outcome is. Just do what's right. Because the right move is always the right thing. What's the right move? Again, outwardly, David looks like an insane mess. But inwardly, as Psalm 34 proves, he feared God. And that's always the right thing. That is always the right answer to any situation. Fear God. Because as we've said recently, if you fear God, you're not going to fear man. You really have those two choices in this life. You can fear man... Fear those around you. Fear what other people say, what other people think, what other people may or may not do. Or you can fear the Lord. But when you fear the Lord, the fear of man goes away. Now in verse 14 here, Peter quotes from another historical situation where he writes, And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. So just as David was not to fear either the Philistines or Saul, so now this other quote comes out of Isaiah chapter 8. In a time where northern Israel was about to imminently be destroyed by Assyria. And there were those down in Jerusalem who were freaking out in southern Judah. Oh no, Assyria is going to get us too. But the Lord made clear to and through the prophet Isaiah, No, no, Assyria is not going to conquer you. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't fear what they have to say. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 says, You are not to fear what they fear. God is talking to Isaiah. and saying, Don't fear what your people are fearing right now. Or be in dread. Or as you see in the Septuagint translation, And do not be troubled or fear their intimidation. So it's either the intimidation of the Assyrians or it's the very fear of those around you. You know what? Sometimes the fear of friends and family can be intimidating and can lead you into fear as well. Sometimes the worry of another near to you is enough to make you worry. And the Lord is telling Isaiah here, look, don't you fear. And then he says in Isaiah 8.13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. See how that works? When I fear the Lord, he's a sanctuary. He's a safe place. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now Peter's already gone there, hasn't he? 
He's already talked about the living stone who is a snare and a trap for Israel and for Judah. And so now he's referring back again. Isaiah is in Peter's head here, Isaiah chapter 8. And what he's saying, verses 13 and 14, is when you are a rock in a hard place, fear the Lord. Fear the living stone. Don't fear Iran or Russia or the DPRK. Don't fear De Niro's foul-mouthed Hollywood. Don't fear rising gas prices or inflation or trade wars with China or threats from Justin Trudeau. Don't fear, listen, don't fear that which keeps you up at night. Don't fear the things that wake you up. Don't fear the things in your life imminently that you're looking at right now and you have no idea how are we going to get over this hill? How are we going to get through this valley? How am I going to even make it to tomorrow with what I know is coming? Don't fear those things. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. That is verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Three things that Peter says right here, and they're they're powerful to set out when you are suffering, especially unjustly. You may be suffering for, for undue fear. Or suffering for something in your life that just doesn't seem right, doesn't seem fair. And when you're in that place, three things to do. Number one, set apart Christ in your heart. Set apart Christ in your heart. Sanctify, he says, Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, Peter still has Isaiah chapter 8 in mind as he writes those words. I'm convinced of it. Why is that? Listen again to the verse that comes right after the one he quotes. He says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. That's Isaiah 8.13 or 8.12. But 8.13 says, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. That is, sanctify Christ as Lord. Regard Christ as holy. Look to Him. Fear Him. The word sanctify, listen to sanctify Christ, is to call Him holy. Because that's what the word sanctify means. It's hagiadzo in the Greek. It is the same word that is translated hagios is the root, which is holy ones or saints, anytime you see it in the New Testament. Hagios. Hagiadzo. You'll see it translated sanctify. You'll see it translated make holy. You'll see it translated hallowed. It's the same word in all of these situations. It is the exact same word, both in tense and in writing, that Jesus used when he taught his disciples to pray, saying, pray then in this way, Matthew 6, 9. Our Father who is in heaven, Hagiadzo be your name. What did Peter just write? Hagiadzo Christ is Lord in your heart. Sanctify, hallow Christ as Lord. Regard Him as holy. See, Peter knew the divinity of Christ. Peter could say, sanctify, make holy Christ in your heart because Peter knew exactly who he was talking about. 
In fact, in his second letter, Peter will begin the letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, writing with this address to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Any question as to the nature of Jesus is summed up right there. He is God and He is Savior. Therefore, our Savior, our Jesus who's in heaven, holy be your name. Wait, whoa, can I do that? Can I, can I pray to Jesus in the same way I pray to my holy God? I hope so. Because He is your holy God. Sanctify Christ as Lord. That means He's the boss. He's the authority. He's in charge. He's the Holy One. He's the Sanctified One. Set apart Christ in heart. Sanctify His holy nature and He shall be your fear. And when Christ Jesus is your fear, nothing else is. When God is the one we fear, we fear nothing The second thing he says to do is set out your case. Set apart Christ in your heart. Sanctify Him. But also, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. Set out your case. Make your defense. The word for defense here is apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics. That's that's a well-used word in Christianity. Christian apologetics, which is defense. But more literally and more personally, apologia means to give a reply to an accusation made against you. So it's not just being able to defend your faith. It's defending yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's making a defense for the hope that's in you. Which is not theological, it's personal. Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you hope in Him? We were talking about this earlier this morning. That is the place to start with anybody. When you start with your hope, that's personal. When you start with the debates and the apologetics, well, that makes it distant. You know, you can go there eventually if people start asking questions, but the best place to start with somebody is, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you hope in Him? What's He done that's made your life so different? Start there. Well, it's not very theological. Right! Right! You start sharing the person you love with people you love. Make your defense. Set out your case. And note this, we're not to get all defensive. Some Christians are defensive. And we're also not to sit idly by and just take the accusations against Christ and our faith. Christianity is not a passive religion. Okay, so which one is it? Do we go on the defensive or or do we sit back and wait? Neither. In fact, the way Peter writes it is he says, be ready always. And then he says to give an account for the hope that's in you yet with gentleness and with reverence. So he gives these two nouns that that qualify our defense or how we, we make our defense to another person. And the first one is gentleness. I love this word. I've told you about it before. It's a Greek word that is a horseman's word. And it's praoutes, which literally is translated meek or power under control. How do you respond to someone in apologia, in defense? Do you freak out? Do you lose it? Do you get impatient? Well, I just, you're not listening to me. Or is it power under control? 
I'll tell you how it's power under control. It is that when you know what you believe. And when by the Holy Spirit, you are making answer. You don't have to worry. In fact, it's great to remember that this isn't even your word. It's His. It's not even your truth. It's God's truth that you trust and believe. You don't have to defend it. Just share it. And you do so with gentleness, power under control, and reverence, which is literally the word phobos, where we get phobia. So I'm supposed to be like gentle and fearful? No. Power under control and reverence for Christ, not man. We're right back to the fear of God versus the fear of man. When you're sharing Jesus, don't fear what they may say to you. You fear God. You fear the one who gave you the word in the first place. And so the question is, am I ready? Are you ready to make a gentle, reverent defense of that hope which is in you? Now here's the cool part. How do I get ready? How do I even know when I don't even know exactly what the questions are going to be or how they're going to come? How do I get ready? Three things that Jesus said about this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 19. When they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. It will be given you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak. It is, note this, the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. There's your reverence. God's the answerer. God's the one who will respond in you and through you at the right time, at the right hour. Jesus promised that, so I'm going to take Him at His word. Jesus went further. He said in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. That's awesome. Do you get what He's already said now? The Spirit of the Father and the Holy Spirit. We're two out of three. Wouldn't it be great if we could tap into all three Persons of the Trinity. If it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that would be marvelous. That would be wonderful. That would be like the whole deal, right? Luke chapter 21, verse 14, Jesus said, Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Note that the three times that Jesus says, Make a defense, He says, The Father will speak through you, the Spirit will speak through you, and I will do it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Take that, Satan. There's your defense. Okay, so so my preparation then is what? I lie down in bed at night and I put my Bible on my forehead and hope for osmosis to take place. You know, kids in high school who would do that. Yeah, I opened the book and I fell asleep under it and I still failed the test. How am I to prepare? You're doing it right now. Be in the Word. I will tell you this much. The Holy Spirit will tap into everything that you know. He'll even give you words that you don't know if you have been in His Word and have been seeking to know. Don't think you're going to have answer if if, if the Bible is closed and sitting on the shelf and never opened. Be in the Word. Study the Word. Be students of the Word, which you are. To to the great encouragement and blessing of all of our lives, we're in this work. And as we're in this work, man, when it comes up, you'll give answer and you'll walk away going, man, that was cool. Wish we recorded that. We could put it on the website. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speaking through you, giving you utterance at 
the right time. So set apart Christ. If you're suffering unjustly, sanctify Christ as Lord. And set out your case. And number three, set your conscience. Look at verse 16 again. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You know what setting out my conscience means? Or, or, or keeping a good conscience? How do you do that? It requires one thing. Predetermination. Predetermination. What do you mean, Rick? I mean it requires that we plan ahead to know what we believe. We choose our values now, not then. We know truth now, not later when we're scribbling and dribbling and the heat is on. Don't wait for the moment to say, well, you know, I'll I'll determine my morality and my values based when I have to. No, do it now. State clearly what you believe now. Know where you stand. I'm going to give you my opinion on the American church, and it's not always great. And in this case... Honestly, I I still believe the vast majority of Christians in America still set apart Christ. And I mean that very positively. I think most Christians, most who would claim to be Christians, followers of Jesus, I think do set apart Christ as Lord. Have claimed Him Lord, call Him Lord, believe that He is Lord. So, in that area, I'll give creds. I think when it comes to setting out or making our case, we're a little weaker. We're a little quieter. We're a little withdrawn. We don't tend to be as vocal in our apologia, our apologetics. But Christ is Lord, and we're working on the other one. I think we are absolutely weakest when it comes to setting out our consciences. To saying, this is what's right, this is where I will stand. This is truth. I see it on the front page of the newspapers. I see it in the media. I see it in how the church caves in and shrinks back and pulls back. We are like Sally saying to Charlie Brown, it's your own fault because you're too wishy-washy. And I think, my opinion, the American church by and large is too wishy-washy. When it comes to values and morals... It's like Paul wrote, Romans one thirty two. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval of those who practice them. I'm talking about Christians who say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and to some level I can defend, but morally speaking, I don't want to be seen as intolerant, therefore I just accept what goes on in culture. These, these sexual immoralities, eh, you probably shouldn't, but people do anyway, so okay. Value judgments, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know Jesus probably wouldn't be comfortable with that, but it's alright, I mean, it's really not that big a deal. And it's wishy-washy. And what we have done is we have failed to keep a good conscience. Because the conscience is only as good as it is set, as we are prepared. Like the Hebrew pastor said in Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Practicing it, living it out, it is in the practice of values that I think many American Christians are weak.
Oh, no, Rick, I, I, no, I, I stand, I, I stand. You know, I, the, the whole Romans 1 and what Paul talks about there, and especially where sexual immorality is concerned. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that while you're taping Ellen. While you're reading this book or that book or binging Game of Thrones. Show of hands, how many have binged Game of Thrones? No, don't do it. Oh, come on, Rick. I mean, yeah, you know what? It is incredibly violent. It is incredibly sexual. And I'm just saying, that's fine because we haven't set the values. Would Jesus sit there with you? Would Jesus read that? Would you be comfortable with Him right next to you experiencing whatever it is in culture that, that we experience or invite into our homes or, or we go out to see or, or to accept for our own entertainment? Would we be cool? Would He be okay with that? See, this is, this is the issue. Yes, I, set about, I, I sanctify Christ. I set apart Christ as Lord. And yes, I'm ready to make a, a defense, but keep a good conscience. Well, if we are at all wishy-washy, I'll tell you what, when it comes to those times of suffering unjustly, it's going to make us wobble. I'm just sharing what, what Peter is telling us, what the Spirit is telling us. Here is how you stand strong even in suffering. Here is how the enemy does not get a foothold in your life, even when it's tough, even when you are living righteously and you are being unjustly treated. Man, Christ is Lord. And I can defend that. And morally speaking, I know what Scripture says, and that is where I stand. Set your conscience. Determine to know ahead of time, not in the heat of the moment, your ethics, your values, and the morality of God's Word. Which again, I'm kind of preaching to the choir because so many of us, if you're here right now, you're here because you want to be in God's Word. Verse 17, For it is better... If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So, good question to ask myself. How much of my suffering comes because of my sin or my surrender to society around me? How much of my suffering is just because I'm doing what's right? Man, if I'm doing what's right, so be it. I can suffer in that. But am I? Is that the root of the tough stuff that I face in life. Well, here's, here's the good news. Verse 18 tells us Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. See, see, here's the thing about suffering unjustly is in reality, in the moment I may be suffering unjustly, but I have myself spent many years unjust. So the truth is, any suffering that I undergo... There's probably something in my life that I deserve what I'm suffering. But Christ died the just for the unjust. So that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, and probably ought to capitalize Spirit there, because it's His Spirit, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Whoa, 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 whoa. We were talking about suffering and Christ dying for us, and I tracked that really well. And all of a sudden, Peter dives into the deep end of Christological thought. What is he talking about here? 
I understand. Okay, again, verse 18. He died for us, the just for the unjust, brings us to God. The yes, in His flesh, he was, he was put to death. Keep that in mind, by the way, that phrase, in the flesh. Peter's going to tap back into that in a few minutes. But made alive in the spirits, that's wonderful. That's the story of the gospel. But all of a sudden, in which he went to make proclamation of the spirits now in prison, it starts to just get weird. So what's Peter talking about? There are several views of this. Several uh, ideas that have grown out. Five, five predominant ideas. So we're going to ask, answer some questions here. Number one, when did Jesus do this? That is, when did he go make proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient from the days of Noah? So, when did Jesus do that? Secondly, who are these spirits of which he speaks? And thirdly, why does Peter pull this one out of the blue? Why is he referring to it here? See, that's, that's important because oftentimes these little three verses here, this little section, gets pulled out and dealt with theologically out of context. Why is Peter talking about it here? So those three questions. Question number one, when did Jesus do this? That is, when did he go make this proclamation to these spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah, which would have been 4,000 years roughly? Before Jesus came? When did He do it? Okay, five views again. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of all five, but I will tell you this much. Four of the five views place this occurrence, what Peter's talking about here, between the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But that's when He made this proclamation to these spirits who were disobedient. Okay, more on that in just a second. There is one of these five views that places it back in the days of Noah. That says what Jesus actually did was prophesy through Noah, speak through Noah, that his spirit, the spirit of Christ, inspired Noah to speak to these spirits, these people, human spirits, of their disobedience in the 120 years that it took Noah to build the ark. That Jesus was there in Noah speaking. And we already know, Peter's already said that happened. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 11. He said, the Spirit of Christ within the prophets. So if Noah was prophesying, which we know he was, the Spirit of Christ was there. The Spirit of Christ was prophesying through Noah to those people who were disobedient. So that must be what Peter's talking about, the one view says. Hmm. It doesn't fit the flow. My opinion, I don't think that fits the flow of what Peter is saying here. And Glenn, I don't know what you taught on this, so I'm just going to give my opinion. I have a feeling we're the same. The context here of verses 18 and 19 seems to be very clearly His crucifixion and resurrection. I mean, Peter just finished saying Christ died for sins once for all, that He was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. And there's only one time in history that that was true. Where his flesh was put to death and his spirit was alive and that was between the death and the resurrection. Because get this, when he resurrected again, his flesh was alive again. It was full bodily resurrection. Both spirit and flesh of Jesus resurrected from the dead. And of course, before his death, his flesh was alive and his spirit was alive. It was only between death and resurrection that this possibly could have taken place. 
So, in answer to the question, when did Jesus do this? When did he, when did he speak to or preach or make proclamation to these disobedient spirits? It had to be between his death and his resurrection. In the three days. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12.40, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Which raises the question, doing what? Making proclamation. Making proclamation. Jesus was preaching the gospel. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. You ask the next question, well, who are these spirits? These, these disobedient spirits. And again, the views of the other four now start to vary pretty widely as to who these spirits specifically are. Uh, some say that these are the demonic spirits of the Nephilim. And I'll explain that. But look at verse 20. It says, who once were disobedient... When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So these spirits had to do with the days of Noah. And the the two thoughts there are either they were the spirits of human beings who were just being disobedient, possibly, or they were the spirits, specifically angelic spirits, fallen angels. And those who tout that view will point to the fact that the word spirits, pneuma in the Greek, um, in the Hebrew, Ruach, that the Ruach doesn't have any qualifier to it when it's talking about fallen angels. So perhaps we're really dealing with what's called the Nephilim. What are the Nephilim? Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. It says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Now this gets wild, but listen. It says, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 says, these sons of God came together with the daughters of men. What does that mean? Those who who don't want to look at the spiritual side of it say, well, sons of God, that's just got to be, you know, believers, followers of God, and began to mix with non-believers, which would be the daughters of men. That's, that's what will then explain to me why in Genesis 6-4 it says the children they bore became the mighty men of old. In fact, the word Nephilim is used and Nephilim means giants. So something was unique about the sons of God mating with the daughters of men that created a race of giants. That's in your Bibles. The Nephilim. Furthermore, the phrase sons of God in the Hebrew Scriptures only and always refers to angels. Sons of God is Bene Elohim. The sons of God, the, the angels. So, so the view is that perhaps, perhaps what's going on here is that Jesus went and made proclamation to these disobedient spirits who are in prison who are the disobedient spirits, the fallen angels, the sons of God, the Bini Elohim, who mated with the daughters of men, created this super race at the time, and were ultimately in the flood, they were all destroyed, all killed, and so Jesus went down to talk to them, to deal with them. And I will say this, it's got to be possible. It's got to at least be possible. In fact, if you wonder why would... Why would angels do that? First of all, how could they? Well, there are things we do not understand and do not know. 
But we know the Bible says that angels can take the form of a man. Can look like, function like, act like a human being. So, so then it would be likely. It's bizarre to me, but likely. Why would they do that? Well, Satan would do anything he could to corrupt the bloodline of humanity. Remember, there was one thing that Satan knew about something that was coming about his future. He knew the curse from Genesis 3.15 that a, a seed born of woman, a seed of woman was going to crush his head. And that didn't sit well with Satan. So somehow he had to stop this seed of woman from killing him, from crushing his head. How do you do that? Curse the bloodline. Mess, mess with the whole thing. Well, God destroyed the world through the flood, saving Noah and his family, saving humanity, by the way, humanity both before the flood, those who died in belief, and those after were saved because God flooded the world, wiped out the Nephilim, dealt with it then and there, and so all these fallen angels, if, if that in fact, these Bini Elohim, if that's who they were, they would all have been wiped out. These spirits who were disobedient. And so they would be in the pit and Jesus now goes down and talks to them. Listen, what the Bible says happened to such angels. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment... So there are angels who have been cast into these pits. Jude, verse 6, and angels who did not keep their proper domain, but abandoned their abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. What are we talking about here? Where is this place? Bible refers to it. Revelation chapter 9, Revelation chapter 20 calls it in Greek the abuso. We would say in English the abyss. And it is a place, interestingly, it is a place that is so vile, so dark, so horrific that even demons don't want to go there. Where apparently these disobedient spirits are incarcerated, no demon wants to be sent to that place. Well, how do you know that? Because Jesus was about to cast the demons out of the man who called, who was called Legion. We are Legion because we are many, said the demon-possessed man. And they begged him, Luke 8.31, they implored him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Don't send us to the abyss. We'd rather be the Bay of Pigs. So Jesus cast them into the pigs and they became ham soup. And that was that. But here you have these horrific demons, legion, saying, Oh, no, don't send us to the abuso. Please don't cast us to the abyss. The abyss is a bad place. In Revelation 9, oh, we're going to get there. The Bible teaches the demons of the abyss are going to be released at the fifth trumpet judgment. And in that release will wreak havoc on this earth. It will be terrifying. You don't want to be here. You do not want to be here. We'll read about that this fall in Revelation 9. Lord willing. But what might Jesus have said? I mean, let's think about this. So, so you're saying that the possibility, and some put, put this forth, is that between Jesus' death 
and his resurrection, he went down into the abyss and he made proclamation to these disobedient spirits in the abyss. Well, if in fact the disobedient spirits that Peter's talking about here are those demons, then Jesus would be making proclamation to them. Well, what would he say to them? Loser. Lehu zeher. You lost. It's over. All that you thought you could attain by rebelling against the Most High God, done, finished, your attempts failed. But there are two problems with this perspective. And the first problem is very simply locational because as far as the Bible is concerned, Jesus never went to the abyss. He went to Hades, which is a different place. He didn't go to the Abuso. He went to Sheol. Bible says, Psalm 16.10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And the implication is Jesus went to Sheol. How do we know that? Because Peter confirmed it. Quoting Psalm 16, verse 10, in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, Peter said that David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. He went to Hades, but was not abandoned there. He did not go to the abyss. So there's a locational problem with that perspective. There's another problem, and it's what I would call a glotational problem. That is, Jesus doesn't gloat. Jesus, see, love doesn't rejoice in wrong. Jesus doesn't gloat. That's not how He rolls. Bible tells us what He did was He descended with a message of salvation. And you don't preach a message of salvation to a people who cannot be saved, to spirits who will not be saved. The message of salvation is to those who are saved, who can be saved. Now, now listen very carefully here because you can immediately start to make judgment. Oh, so he didn't go to the demons. No, instead he went to Hades and he preached the message of salvation and people got saved. That's what cults teach. That's not what I'm saying. We're not talking about Jesus going down into Hades and offering second chance salvation. What he did do was go down to Hades and give the affirmation of salvation to the righteous dead. That is, all those who died in faith, died trusting God, died knowing, like Abraham, like Noah, like David, those who died trusting the Lord, but waiting because there was no payment of redemption. There was no sacrifice to to release them, and so they wait. And Jesus goes down, and the message of salvation, He preaches the Gospel. Guess what, gang? The Gospel's done. Your faith in God has found fulfillment in Me. And what would He do then? Maybe sing a little hymn and say, Buckle up, let's go. And release them from their prison. And that is what I believe Peter is referring to. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand. I will watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. It's God speaking to Jesus. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus Himself speaking, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Or as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean, Paul writes? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. This gospel message that Jesus brought between his death and his resurrection was the completion of salvation. Those who have been dead but righteous, righteous because they had faith in God, were now brought the message of their freedom by the messenger himself who broke the chains and let them all out. And at that point emptied out the paradise side of Hades. Isn't that cool? And I believe it is biblical and it is solid and Jesus led the captives free. By the way, note over in chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, Peter writes, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now God is going to deal with demons and the Nephilim. But why does Peter put it here? So third question. Why this vignette, this this fascinating uh, pulling back of a veil, as it were, and looking into these things, why does he share this here? And it's very simple in context. He shares it as a clear example of a suffering Savior who pursues those who suffer. Of a suffering Jesus who goes after those who are imprisoned. Who saves the sufferer, even to the point of going to the grave. And some might hear that and say, okay then, well, I'll just wait until I'm dead to hear it. That's true, he can come tell me when I'm dead. No, no, that sermon's been given. That gospel has been preached. The song has been sung. You choose now. Because there was only that window of three days where Jesus made that proclamation, and even for that proclamation, it was to those who had already died in faith. Guess what? You're free. Verse 20, continuing, says that in this, a few, during the construction of the ark, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, that is Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, Mrs. Noah, Mrs. Ham, Mrs. Shem, and Mrs. Japheth. They were all saved. Because of the righteousness of Noah. Was Noah a perfect man? Oh, far from it. And we see that as soon as they land the ark. But he believed. And like Abraham, his faith was his righteousness. And so those righteous dead would be saved. Now, Peter continues corresponding to that. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt or filth from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. What did the flood do? It cleansed. 
We just had our, our house power washed. Our house hasn't looked this good in 13 years. I mean, seriously. The guy, we were having it painted, and he came out, power washed the whole thing, and I had left, and I drove up the driveway, and I'm like, oh, you know, just shining, and there's a light coming down from the heavens. It was amazing. Clean. And the flood did that. The flood cleansed the evil of the world, cleaned out the pollution of the darkness, of the, the constant wickedness and violence that was taking place on the planet. That, that The Bible even tells us in Genesis 6 that their every thought was violence. It's all they thought about. It's all they dwelled on. We're pretty close in this culture. I mentioned Game of Thrones. That's not so bad. I mean, it's violent. Exactly. And for that, God flooded the earth. But when he did so, (coughs) there was a washing that took place. And that's baptism. And Peter now taps this as that's the picture. That's the whole idea behind it. It's a representation of the exact same thing. A picture of cleansing a defiled and polluted conscience. Now people read this verse and they ask the question, well, so then, is baptism necessary for salvation? Because he says, baptism now saves you. Now, if Peter had put a period there, I would agree. Yes, then then we would have to say that baptism saves you, and if you don't get baptized, you can't possibly be saved. But the problem is, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. So it's grace that saves us. Yeah, but Peter says, baptism now saves you. Yeah, and then he says, dash. And he qualifies it. Well, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's a statement that is made. Peter clarifies this. It's not the water. It's not the act that saves. It's what's represented in the act. And that is the blood washing of Jesus. That we are cleansed, that we are saved from our defilement by the blood of Christ. His blood is the great conscience cleanser. And God gives us this beautiful picture of baptism. And I was going to take you to Romans 6. I won't do that tonight just for time's sake. But Romans 6, Paul talks about it. Buried with Christ. Just as He died and raised up, just as He was raised up from the grave to walk in this new life, the picture is stunning and dramatic. And one of only two things that God gives us is ordinances for the church. Communion's the other one. Representation. When you take the cracker or drink the juice, you're not eating flesh and drinking blood, but the representation is there. Same thing with baptism. When you go under the water, you're not being saved by that action, but it represents the salvation of the blood of Jesus that washes us completely clean, precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.19. So Peter ties baptism in here, and in verse 22, he mentions again Jesus. It's through the resurrection of Jesus. This is all even possible. And he said, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, the ascension, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Weren't they always? Shouldn't they always have been subjected to him? Not when he put on flesh. Because Philippians 2 tells us when he put on flesh, he emptied himself. Oh, he still had authority. Still had power. We saw him wield it over the demons. 
But he set aside the glory, set aside even the authority, except that what the Father gave him. And yet in his resurrection, I'm back, baby! (laughs) As he ascends again to the heavens at the right hand of God. Oh, we talked about the right hand of God in the Hebrew letter. That place of authority. That seat of the throne. That glory and the grandeur that comes of being at the right hand of God. Remember, Peter witnessed that. When Peter writes, having gone into heaven, Peter was there on the Mount of Olives watching Jesus go into heaven. He's just writing down what he saw with his own eyes. And Peter knew where he was going. See, Jesus told him, he said, John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'll receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas goes, which way? And you know the answer. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so Peter writes, he went to the heavens. By the way, the New Testament writers have absolutely no problem addressing heaven in spatial terms. That is as a legitimate, specific realm. An actual place, not some vague, esoteric, misty deal. But a real place where the Spirit of God really dwells. A reality far more real than this one. Far more solid and more true. There is a heavenly realm that brothers and sisters will overtake this earthly realm. And I believe sooner as opposed to later. Well, chapter 4, he continues, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. What's your point, Peter? In the flesh, in the flesh, in the flesh. What's he saying? The flesh has got to die. Flesh has got to die. That's the only way that this works. And first of all, flesh has got to die because that's the gospel. That Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus came. The Word put on flesh and flesh had to die. John 1.14 And 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 He writes, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh... That's from God. That's the spirit you can trust. Whether it's the spirit of a human being or an angelic spirit, if it proclaims Jesus came in the flesh, it's legit. John goes on to say, if it denies Jesus coming in the flesh, that's the spirit of Antichrist. You want to watch out for that one. And just as Jesus was literally put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, chapter 3, verse 18, so this flesh has got to die. My flesh has to die. Your flesh has to die. Paul said in Romans 8.12, we're under obligation. Oh, not to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Jesus came in the flesh, in the flesh, in the flesh, that we might, like Him, die to the flesh and be made alive in the Spirit. 
So all these other things we talked about earlier, sanctifying Christ as Lord, making a defense, keeping a good conscience, you know what that's about? Killing flesh. It's just about killing flesh. When you turn off Game of Thrones, and I'm just hammering on Game of Thrones because it's an easy target. (laughs) But when you turn it off, you have just put the deeds of uh, of the flesh to death. When you say no to the things of culture and society that are not Christ-like, you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Praise God. Because every time I kill flesh, you know what I'm doing? I'm enlivening spirit. I am becoming more and more spiritual. More and more like Jesus. More Christ-like. The flesh has got to die. Verse 3. I love this verse. For the time already passed is sufficient. For you have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You've already done that. That's passe. You know, you filled those things out. That that was sufficient. What are you saying here, Peter? I mean, it sounds kind of like he's saying these things came from the carefree days of youthful passions, and (laughs) I was just out sowing my wild oats. Listen. Peter's not justifying these behaviors. He is talking to a people who had come directly out of them. More so than any time in church history, he is talking to a church filled with people whose past was made up of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. We could go down the many lists of sin that Paul gives... And 99.9% of the people sitting in those fellowships, reading these letters, were straight out of it. They hadn't known anything else. They weren't raised going to church. There was no such thing. Children were, were raised, I mean, the next generation. And perhaps there were now a few kids that were starting to be raised with this whole new concept of Christianity. But the vast majority were people in this young church raised in the Greco-Roman culture that certainly had no problem with immorality. So I'm saying, that that was the time past. You all know that. You're all familiar with that. You remember that. You've come out of that. We were talking today about a program that we want to do in the fall. And we'll be talking more about it, but it's about raising up godly kids and, and looking across the, um, across the generations and how we raise godly kids from the youngest ages all the way through the teen years and on out and, and what do we do. And, and the desire came from, from Jake and Cam talking about this and saying, you know, Jake saying, it's heartbreaking when you have parents of teenagers coming to you and saying, what do I do with my kid? And the first answer is, well, you needed to start 12 years ago. And that's, that's when it needed to begin. But you know what the reality is? Even for those of you who did start 12 years ago, some of them are still going to head off the rails. And there's nothing you can do about it. We're going to do this program in the fall and, and do some teaching and some encouraging, spend the day together. It's going to be a marvelous day. But you know what? The cynic in me knows the impact is only going to be so much. Because of free will and because of what people do. And what's sad is that 2,000 years into the life of the church, 2,000 years of having time to get it right and raise up godly believers, look at this generation and tell me where we sit. And when Peter says the time has already 
already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Sadly, a huge percentage of people sitting in church go, yeah, that was me. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that's where I went. That's what I did. That's how I lived. Because we're right back where they were in the first century. Which again is why it's so important. And please, don't feel like Pastor Rick wants to just take you down a guilt trip. Pack your bags. Here we go. You know, talking about these movies and shows and things we do and what we watch and, and all these things. And he's trying to say, keep a good conscience. Well, listen, listen. What, what's our hope? If we're not hearing the Word of God, if we're not learning to be sensitive to the Spirit so we hear the voice of God, what is our hope? But that we'll just be like the church of the first century having come right out of these messes. But Peter says, that's past. Brothers and sisters in Christ, can we agree with Peter that sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, we could add in sexual immoralities, all these things, can we agree with Peter those things must be past for us because we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh so that we can be alive in the Spirit, which is vastly better. Verse 4. Quickly, we're almost done. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Boy, don't you know that is true? When you run with someone in sin and then suddenly stop Say, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going there anymore. I'm not involving myself in those things. What happens? They malign you. That's the reaction. That word malign is interesting. It's blasphemeo. They blaspheme you. What? What? They blaspheme me? Well, that's an unforgivable sin. No, unless you're the Holy Spirit. That is not unforgivable. You're going to be blasphemed, brothers and sisters. You're going to be maligned, especially if you walk a certain road of sinful behavior and you stop, which, by the way, is why a lot of Christians don't stop. Because I don't want to be maligned. When I'm around this group of people, they know old Rick. So i got to be old Rick because I don't want them picking on me and calling me Mr. Goody Two-Shoes and making fun of me and blaspheming me. So I do that. No, we stop. We stop. In fact, he says back there in verse 1, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, and the word ceased is stop. It's like what we would put on a stop sign. Big old red stop. I don't sin anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. Well, if you don't, you're going to be blasphemed. Blasphemeo is literally to slander with respect to identity. In Mark chapter 3, it's interesting. The Pharisees and the scribes are getting on Jesus. And they say, don't we know that you are of Beelzebub and you speak of, by that spirit? And Jesus goes, all right, right there, hold it. Anything that is said, any blasphemies of men will be forgiven. He even in Luke chapter 12's version of this, he even says... And if you blaspheme the Son of Man, pointing to Himself, that will be forgiven. But He said, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. 
Why? What was going on there? What's the difference? Blasphemy the Son of Man, that's Jesus. Blasphemy the Holy Spirit, isn't that still Jesus? What's, what's the difference? Listen, blasphemy the Son of Man was not recognizing who Jesus was in the flesh, and there was grace for that. There was grace for that. Jesus knew even some of His closest followers would not get it until they saw Him in the resurrection. Jesus knew this was hard to catch, at least at first. This was going to take some faith. This was going to take a little time. So if someone says, oh, that Jesus can't be God, that's blasphemy. But it's forgivable and would be forgiven. However, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that is overtly rejecting the Spirit of God. Calling the Spirit of God Beelzebub? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Saying Jesus was filled with Beelzebub rather than the Holy Spirit? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that is unforgivable. But we will be blasphemed. Forgivable. It's okay. Someone's going to malign you. They're going to get on to you. Forgive it. Don't take it to heart. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. And forgive because they don't yet see who you are in Christ. I'm not doing those old things anymore. Well, you're just a weirdo. Give them time to see who you are in Jesus as you make your defense with gentleness and reverence. As you live out the new life before them, give them time. They'll come around. They'll start to see who you really are. And that's how you do it. For the Gospel, verse 6, the Gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Listen, this is not again a verse for the dead today as some of the cults teach. Cults will say that those who are dead can still make a decision for Christ. No, when you're dead, you're dead. And especially now, post the resurrection of Jesus, when you die, you die in the state that you die. So what's he talking about? Well, if it speaks of the dead at all, it's as we said earlier, the righteous dead before Christ who heard that message. But I think Peter's doing something else. I think that verse 6 is evangelistic. I think he's talking about the walking dead. You know, dead men, dead women walking. Not zombies. But people who right now are not in Christ Jesus and therefore are walking dead. They are not alive. They're in the flesh and therefore not alive. Flesh has to die to be made alive in the Spirit. And Peter says the Gospel has for this purpose been preached to those who are dead that though they are judged in the flesh as men they be alive or they may, be, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. It's evangelistic. Because without the Gospel all people are dead. And only through the gospel of Jesus Christ are we made alive. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Underline that. What he says literally, he says, the end has come near. And it had. From Peter's perspective, the final age had begun. From Peter's perspective, he's on the front end of the end. And it started 2,000 years ago. We are on the tail end of the end. For Peter to say the end is near is for Peter to say we're in the final age of this earth. 
For you and I to say the end is near is to say we are at the end of the final age of this earth. The end, my friends, is near and I am convinced it will not be much longer. Now, quickly, we come to therefore number four out of seven. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago that he moves you through the letter saying therefore, 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 and every therefore takes you on, keeps pushing you forward. And so he says here, halfway through verse seven, therefore, since the end of all things is near, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. If you've got a pen with you, you want to add an S at the end of prayer because it's the plural form of the word. Be sober for the purpose of prayers. It's not a one-shot deal. Well, I prayed the prayer when I gave my life to Jesus, and if anything changes, I'll let Him know. Be sober for the purpose of prayers. Above all, verse 8, above all, He says, keep fervent in your love for one another, your agape. Because agape covers a multitude of sins, He quotes Proverbs 10, verse 12 right there. Paul said, earnestly desire the greater gifts, 1 Corinthians 12.31, but I'll show you a more excellent way. And then at the end of the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 13.13, he, after discussing the more excellent way of love, says, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Brothers and sisters, in this fellowship, if we get anything right, let's get love right. If we're going to be wrong in any case, may it never be in our love for each other. We can be wrong doctrinally. We can make wrong choices. We can even misunderstand values and morality and all the other things we talked about tonight. But if we don't get love right, we don't know Jesus. The Bible says we don't even know God because God is love. And love is the deal and Peter elevates it above all. And then he describes it further in verse 9. He says, hey, be hospitable to one another without complaint. You know, the Hoffmans are coming over to dinner tonight. going to put out the plates. And he goes, oh, the china. Be careful with the china. <laughs> got to fix the dinner and clean the house. And they'll be here. They never say thank you. Not true. Just be hospitable. Don't complain about it. Be thankful that you get to be hospitable. Verse 10. As each one has a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The Bible is replete on these things. We have all been gifted. Well, I don't know what my gift is. Ask Jesus. I don't know what your gift is. Ask Him. And as soon as you start to be alerted to what it is, walk in it, use it, employ it. Don't sit back with it. Whatever your gift may be, We've been given the grace of God, all of us gifted in one way or another. And then he gives two examples. He says, whoever speaks as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Now, speaks here specifically, he's talking about the prophetic gifts. Teaching, and preaching, and, and prophecy. And if you are speaking, speak with the confidence of the Word. I think I told you this a, a while ago. Give me a second. I told you that I got in trouble for being confident when I taught. I actually did. I had some co-pastors come and say, you need to dial it down, Rick. You sound a little too sure of yourself when you're teaching the Bible. I'm like, 
That's the only time I am sure of myself. (laughs) Is when I'm teaching the Bible. (laughs) These are words I know are true. So I'm going to be confident. These are the utterances of God. You realize what I've been telling you tonight? These are the utterances of God. You can disagree with me all you want, but you look at this word and deal with His word. These are His words. So speak with that kind of confidence, man. And whoever serves as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things, and here's the point, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is the point. That is the great answer to all Christ-like suffering, is to glorify God. The fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Man, if it brings glory to God, bring on the suffering. And if you tonight feel like you're a rock in a hard place, hey, fear God. Glorify God through Jesus Christ because the dominion is His.